This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. It is uh, a real pleasure for me to be the person who introduces Ron Hansen this evening. Uh, back in the late 1980s, there was uh, an English major of a very unusual sort, a guy named Larry, who was in his mid-30s, had been a logger, was self-educated in a lot of interesting ways. He always was introducing new vocabulary words into our classes. We didn't know whether they were pronounced right or not, but they were pretty good words. And one of the things that Larry did was introduce us to his favorite writers. And I came to my mailbox in Grieve Hall, for those of you old enough to remember Grieve Hall, and uh, found that there was a copy of a mass-market paperback with a very weird title, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, with a note from Larry saying, you've got to read this. This guy can write. And that's how I was introduced to Ron Hansen's writing, uh, was by reading that novel and following it up as quickly as I could with some other things as they were available. I have taught Marietta in ecstasy repeated times in the class, religious themes in modern literature, and as far as I can remember, there hasn't been a time when at least one student hasn't listed that as his or her favorite of the semester. And in my fiction writing class, uh, we work with two novels, a good novel and a better novel, <laughs> and uh, talk about what makes the better novel better. And Atticus was our better novel for at least three years, and it still is a better novel than a whole lot of novels. So we're talking here uh, about a man whom I have been pitching for 20 years to bring here as our reader, and I'm very pleased that he's here now. He has been, for the last 19 years, teaching at Santa Clara University. He has other institutions in his past, including Stanford in Arizona and Michigan. He has fellowships beyond number. Uh, including Guggenheim's, a couple of National Endowment for the Arts, uh, the Wallace Stegner Fellowship at Stanford. And as those of you who were here last night know, he's also very much involved in screenwriting and movies. He's working on a book now on The Kid, uh, which has been an interesting topic. People who think of him as a writer of Western stories know about the Jesse James, about the Dalton Gang, about Billy the Kid. They don't think about the young novice nun. They don't think about Gerard Manley Hopkins and the five German nuns. They don't think about the French couple involved in hometown theatrics in Nebraska, which probably you don't either think of. But there's more than just Westerns, not that there's anything just about Westerns in Ron Hansen's uh, work and vision. And he's going to read to us tonight from some things that he will explain. I, oh, I, there's one thing I neglected to mention, and that is his collection of uh, essays called A Stay Against Confusion. I always have two or three copies of that on a book rack in my office because I give it to people who need to hear some of the things that get said in some of those essays. So here is Ron Hansen. Uh, this guy can write. <laughs> By the way, there, I was told, and Vic was told, that there's punch cards that you have to, some of you in the classroom have to uh, deal with, and Tom Carraway's up there in the corner, and he'll take care of it for you. 
Um, I'm going to read a short essay uh, to begin with, and I'm going to read a couple fiction things. Um, this is called Hotly in Pursuit of the Real, and the title will be explained as I go along. Ever since I learned to read, I have wanted to be a fiction writer. The vocation was inchoate at first, for books seem as author, authorless as rain to a child, but it insisted that I not only inhabit the world imagined by others, as good readers do, but go on with the story, configure it to fit my own life, filch it like candy left out in a bowl. Robert Coles has named this odd hankering and delight the call of stories. I may have been five or so when I first noticed that calling. At Sunday Mass in Omaha, the priest ascended the stairs to the high pulpit at Holy Angels Church, announced a reading from one of the Gospels, and after a few sentences of the passage, I was suddenly aware that the story was familiar to me. Say it was the shockingly concrete scene in Mark where Jesus heals a blind man by wetting the man's eyes with his spittle. I found myself anticipating the next moves, certain that the man would say he could see people, but they looked like trees walking. And Jesus would lay his hands on the afflicted man's eyes again, and then the man would see everything clearly. The sentences were sure and predictable to me. I felt I was finally their audience. And I realized with a good deal of wonder that the Gospels were like those children's books that my mother or sisters would read to me over and over again. With great seriousness, the priest would read aloud the same stunning stories from the life of Christ, and when he was finished reading, would talk intelligently about the meaning of the passage in our own lives. And even the old in the congregation would watch and listen like children being taught. The liturgical rites were grand theater then, filled with magisterial ceremony, great varieties of mystery and symbol, and a haunting Gregorian chant that sounded lovely, even if poorly sung. And since I could not yet follow the English translation of the priest's Latin in my missal, I would fix my gaze high overhead on the soft blue sky of the dome, on which there was a huge, literal, and beautiful painting of Christ being escorted by the holy angels on his ascension to heaven, his loose white clothing floating off him so that most of his flesh was exposed. Looking back at my childhood now, I find that church-going and religion were in good part the origin of my vocation as a writer, for along with feast, Christianity's feast of the senses, its ethical concerns, its insistence on seeing God in all things, and the high status it gave to scripture, drama, and art, there was a connotation that storytelling mattered. Each Bible passage was a narrative steeped in meaning and metaphor, helping the faithful not only to remember the past, but to make it present here and now, and to bind ourselves into a sharing group that, ideally, we could continue the public ministry of Jesus in our world. On the other hand, my vocation as a writer was also called forth by something unnameable that I can only associate with a yen to live out in my imagination, imagination, other lives and possibilities, a craving that eventually made acting attractive to my brother and soon made storytelling necessary to me. 
In kindergarten, for example, we had an afternoon period of show and tell. A few minutes earlier, a boy named Kenneth breathlessly told me about the side altar at some European cathedral his family had visited, where pressure-sensitive pre-do illuminated a crucifix when penitents fell on their knees there to pray. Seeing my fascination, the five-year-old went further, confusing the scene and himself with flashing colors and whirring mechanisms that seemed lifted from a science fiction movie. I fell into my own imagining as Sister Martha went from child to child, asking them to report in adventures, discoveries, encounters, or anything else they thought noteworthy. And then she got to me. I instinctively said a neighbor had turned a hallway closet into a chapel with holy pictures everywhere. And there were lots of candles burning all the time because that was the only light. And there was a kneeler in front of a crucifix and when you knelt on it, real blood trickled out of the wounds in Christ's hands and feet. Real blood? Sister Martha asked. Well, it looked like real blood. It was red like blood. And it trickled down his face from the crown of the thorns too. She squinted at me with just a twitch of a smile. And I was shocked, even insulted, that she could think I was making this up. Hadn't I seen that hallway closet, that padded pre-do, the crucifix with my own eyes? I could describe the finest detail. I could smell the candle wax as it burned, stifling her amusement. The kindergarten teacher questioned me more closely, possibly having found a kid-say-the-darndest-things instance that she could present like a chocolate pie to her sisters at dinner. And I just kept embellishing and filling in gaps in the narrative until Sister Martha seemed to decide I was depleted, and she shifted to another child. And when I looked at Kenneth, he was wide-eyed and in awe, with no hint of a front for my having stolen his show-and-tell, with a certain amount of jealousy that I'd seen a pre that was so far superior to his, and worse, seemed to have tried to selfishly keep it to myself. Within the year, I would be reading on my own and finding out about children's books and children's authors and their need to do just what I did, to alter facts that seemed imposed and arbitrary, to intensify scenes and situations with additions and falsifications, and to ameliorate the dull and slack commodities of experience with the zest of the wildest imaginings. The first author whose name I remembered and whose stories I hunted down was Jules Verne, whom I avidly read in third grade. In fourth grade, it was Albert Payson Terhune. I even named our foundling pup after his, Lad. And there was Peck's Bad Boy by Arend Harris, with its gladdening irony that a boy who was continually getting into trouble with grown-ups might simply be just acting like boys do. Then it was fifth grade, and the Hardy Boys and Tom Swift, books meant for kids my age, but things that seemed hopelessly old-fashioned, it did not thrill me nearly so much as the tales of Edgar Allan Poe, who so hooked me that I held his book of horror stories open in my lap to sneak, sneak peeks at as I pretended to take classroom notes. I was drawing and painting then, not writing fiction. A friend's father was an illustrator, and I fantasized that I would have a job like that when I got out of school. But gradually, an urgency to write fiction took over. It was a vocation that seemed so exalted and sacred and beyond me, I would not even talk about it.
In Confessions of a Reluctant Catholic, the novelist Alice McDermott recalls learning to be a writer, which seemed to me from the outset to be an impossible pursuit, one for which I had no preparation or training or even motive, except for a secret and undeniable urge to do so. She discovered that, quote, fiction made the chaos bearable. Fiction transformed the absurdity of our brief lives by giving context and purpose and significance to every gesture, every desire, every detail. Fiction transformed the meaningless, fleeting stuff of daily life into the necessary components of an enduring work of art, unquote. The intuition of the fiction writer is similar to that of the scientist, that the world is governed by rules and patterns that are, by analysis and experiment, detectable, that the hidden mysteries of nature can be interrogated and solved. I have run into people who don't read fiction because they feel it is founded on fabrications and swindles and worthless extenuations of reality. A famous professional golfer, John Daly, once complained about classes in college where he was forced to read, quote, these big fat books that weren't even true. (laughs) But for many of us, fiction holds up to the light, fathoms, simplifies and refines those existential truths that, without such interpretation, seem all too secret, partial, and elusive. And that, of course, is the goal of religion as well. Some writers are agnostic and have as their religion art, but just as many are conscious that the source of their gifts is God and have found thanksgiving, worship, and praise of the holy being to be central to their lives and artistic practice. In an American requiem, God, My Father, in the War That Came Between Us, James Carroll wrote that, quote, the very act of storytelling, of arranging memory and invention according to the structure of narrative is by definition holy, unquote. In a later interview, Carroll stated that, quote, my notion of narrative informs my faith and my notion of faith informs my idea of what writing is for. Writing not only gives form and meaning to our sometimes disorderly existence, but gives the author the chance of self-disclosure and communion with others while giving readers a privileged share in another's inner life that, perhaps imperceptibly, questions and illuminates their own. Reading attentively, connecting our lives with those of fictional characters, choosing ethically and emotionally just as they do or in contradistinction to them, we enter the realm of the spirit where we simultaneously discover our likeness to others and our difference, our uniqueness. Questioning ourselves and our world, finding in it for all its coincidence, accidents and contingencies, a mysterious coherence, we may become aware of a horizon beyond which abides the one who is the creator and context of our existence. Writing on the short story master, Andre Debuse, Tobias Wolff noted that in his friend's work, quote, the quotidian and the spiritual don't exist on different planes, but infuse each other. His is an unapologetically sacramental vision of life in which ordinary things participate in the miraculous, the miraculous in ordinary things. He believes in God and talks to him and doesn't mince words. He is open to mystery, and of all mysteries, that one that interests him most is the human potential for transcendence. 
Edifying Christian fiction can have a tendency to attenuate the scandal of the Incarnation by circumscribing the sensual or sordid facts of the flesh in order to concentrate on heavenly actions and aspirations. And in doing so, such fiction fails both the mysteries we are informed by and those mysteries of sin and redemption we perceive in our daily lives. We need Christian fiction writers who are, in Flannery O'Connor's phrase, hotly in pursuit of the real. She noted that, quote, the chief difference between the novelist who is an orthodox Christian and the novelist who is merely a naturalist is that the Christian novelist lives in a larger universe. He believes that the natural world contains the supernatural. And this doesn't mean that his obligation to portray nature is less. It means it is greater. I'll conclude with that. And now I'm going to move on to some fiction that I hope demonstrates what I just talked about. Um, the first is a story called Nebraska. I was approached by a prairie schooner when I was a very young writer. And they knew I was from Nebraska and asked if I had any stories about Nebraska. I said, of course I do. And of course I didn't. Uh, it's what writers do. And so I just started putting down memories. And this is the product of those things. Nebraska. The town is Americus, Covenant, Denmark, Grange, Hooray, Jerusalem, Sweetwater. One of the lesser-known moons of the Platte, conceived in sickness and misery by European pioneers who took the path of least resistance and put down roots in an emptiness like the one they kept secret in their youth. In Swedish and Danish and German and Polish, in anxiety and fury in God's providence, they chopped at the Great Plains with spades, creating green sod houses that crumbled and collapsed in the rain or disappeared in the first persuasive snow and were so low the grown-ups stooped to go inside and yet were places of ownership and a hard kind of happiness, the places that our occupants gravely stood before on those plenary occasions when photographs were taken. And then the Union Pacific stopped by, just a camp of white campaign tents and a boy playing his harpoon at night. And then a supply store, a depot, a pine water tank, stockyards, and the mean prosperity of the 20th century. The trains strolling into town to shed a boxcar in the depot's side yard or crying past at 60 miles per hour, possibly interrupting a girl in her high wire act, her arms looping up when she tips to one side, the rail top as slippery as a silver spoon. And then the yellow and red locomotive rises up from the heat shimmer over a mile away, the August noonday warping the sight of it, but cinders tapping away from the spikes and the iron rails already vibrating up inside the girl's shoes. She steps down to the roadbed and then into high weeds as the Union Pacific pulls Wyoming coal and Georgia Pacific lumber and snowplow blades and a slant Japanese pickup trucks through the open countryside and on to Omaha. And when it passes by, a worker she knows is opposite her, like a pedestrian at a stoplight, the sun not letting up, the plain song of grasshoppers going on and on between them until the worker says, hot. Twice the Union Pacific tracks cross over the sidewinding Democrat, the water slow as an ox cart, green as silage, 
croplands to the east, yards and houses to the west, a green ceiling of leaves in some places, whirlpools showing up in it like spinning plates that lose speed and disappear. In winter, in a week or more of just above zero, high school couples walk the gray ice, kicking up snow as quiet words are passed between them, opinions are mildly compromised, sorrows are apportioned. And Emil Jedlicka unslings his blue-stocked twenty-two and slogs through high brown weeds and snow, hunting ring-necked pheasant, sidelong rabbits, and always suddenly quail. As his little brother Oren sprints across the Democrat in order to slide like an otter. July in town is a gray highway and a Ford hay truck spraying by, the hay sailing like a yellow ribbon caught in the mouth of a prancing dog. And Billy Awalt up there on the camel's hump, 18 years old and sweaty and dirty, peppered and dappled with hay dust, a lump of chew like an extra thumb under his lower lip, his blue eyes happening on a dairy queen and a pretty girl licking a pale trickle of ice cream from the cone. And Billy slaps his heart and cries, Oh, I am pierced. And late October is orange on the ground and blue overhead and grain silos stacked up like white poker chips and a high silver water tower belittled one night by the sloppy tattoo of one year's class at George W. Norris High. And below the silos and water tower are stripped tree traps, their gray limbs still lifted up in hallelujah, their yellow leaves crowding along yard fences and sheeping along the sidewalks and alleys under the shepherding wind. Or January, and a heavy snow partitioning the landscape, whiting out the highways and woods and cattle lots until there are only open spaces and steamed-up window panes, and a Nordstrom boy limping pitifully to the, in the hard plaster of his clothes. The snow is deep as his hips when the boy tips over and cannot get up until a little Schumacher girl sitting by the stoop window, a spoon in her mouth, a bowl of Cheerios in her lap, says in plain voice, there's a boy, and her mother looks out to the sidewalk. Houses are big and white and two stories high, each a cousin to the next with pigeon roosts in the attic gables, green storm windows on the upper floor, and a green screen porch, some as pillowed and couched as parlors, or made into sleeping rooms for the boy whose next step will be the Navy and days spent on ship with his hometown's own population, on gray water that rises up and is allayed like a geography of cornfields, sugar beets, soybeans, wheat, that stays there and says in its own way, stay. Houses are turned away from the land and toward whatever is not always, sitting across from each other like dressed-up children at a party in daylight, their parents looking on with hopes and fond expectations. Overgrown elm and sycamore trees poach the sunlight from the lawns and keep petticoats of snow around them into April. In the deep lots out back are wire clotheslines with flapping white sheets pinned to them. Property lines are hedged with sour green and purple grapes or with rabbit wire and gardens of peonies, roses, gladiola, irises, marigolds, pansies. Fruit trees are so closely planted that they cannot sway without knitting. The apples and cherries drop and sweetly decompose until there are only slight brown bumps in the yards. But the pears stay up in the wind, 
drooping under the pecks of birds, withering down like peppers until their sorrow is justly noticed and they one day disappear. Aligned against an alley of blue shale rock is a garage whose doors slash weeds and scrape up pebbles as an old man pokily swings them open, teetering with his last weak push. And then Victor Johnson rummages inside, being cautious about his gray sweater and high-topped shoes, looking over paint cans, junked electric motors, grass rakes and garden rakes and a pitchfork and sickles, gray doors and ladders piled overhead in the rafter, and an old wind-up Victrola and heavy platter records from the 20s, one of them a soprano singing, I'm a lonesome melody. Under a green tarpaulin is a wooden movie projector he painted silver and big cans of tan celluloid, much of it orange and green with age, but one strip of it preserved, of an army pilot in Jodhpur's job popping from one biplane onto the other's upper wing. Country people who'd paid to see the movie had been spellbound by the slight dip of the wings at the pilot's jump, the slap of his leather jacket, and how his hair strayed wild and was promptly sleeked back by the wind. But looking at the strip now, pulling a ribbon of it, uh, of it up to a window pane and letting it unspool to the ground, Victor could make out only 20 frames of a leap, and then snapshot after snapshot of an army pilot clinging to the biplane's wing. And yet Victor stays with it, as though that scene of one man staying alive were what he'd paid his nickel for. Main Street is just a block away. Pickup trucks stop in it so the drivers can angle out over their brown left arms and speak about crops or praise the weather or make up sentences whose only real point is their lack of complication. And then a cattle truck comes up and they mosey along with a touch of their cap bills or a slap of the door metal. High school girls in skin-tight jeans stay in one place on weekends and jacked-up cars cruise past Rowdy farm boys overlapping inside, pulling over now and then in order to give the girls cigarettes and sips of pop and grief about their lipstick. And when the cars peeled out, peel out, the girls say how a particular boy measured up, or they swap gossip about Donna Moriarty and the scope she permitted Randy when he came back from boot camp. Everyone is famous in this town, and everyone is necessary. Townspeople go to the Vaughn grocery store for the daily news and to the home restaurant for history class, especially at Evensong when the old people eat graveled pot roast and lemon meringue pie and calmly sip coffee from cups they tip to their mouths with both hands. The Kiwanis Club meets here on Tuesday nights and hopes are made public, petty sins are tidily dispatched, the proceeds from the gumball machines are tallied up and poured into the upkeep of a playground. Utsler's hardware has picnic items and kitchen appliances in its one window, in the manner of those prosperous men who would prefer to be known for their hobbies. And there is one crisp white Protestant church with a steeple of the sort pictured on calendars, and the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church grayly holding the town at bay like a Gothic wolfhound. And there's an insurance agency, a county coroner and justice of the peace, a second-hand shop, a handsome chiropractor named Coke, who coaches <coughs> the Pony League baseball team, a post office approached on unpainted wood steps outside of a cheap mobile home, the Nighthawk Tavern, 
where there's Falstaff tap beer, a green pool table, a poster recording the Cornhuskers' scores, a crazy man patiently tolerated, a gray-haired woman with an unmoored eye, a boy in spectacles thick as paperweights, a carpenter missing one index finger, a plump waitress whose day job is in a basement beauty shop, an old woman who creeps up to the side door at eight in order to purchase one shot glass of whiskey. And yet, passing by and paying attention, an outsider is only aware of what isn't, that there's no bookshop, no picture show, no pharmacy or dry cleaners, no cocktail parties, extreme opinions, jewelry or piano stores, hotels, motels, hospital, political headquarters, philosophical theories about being and the soul. High importance is only attached to practicalities, and so there is the bachelor funeral home, where a proud old gentleman is on display in a dark brown suit, his yellow fingernails finally clean, his smeared eyeglasses in his coat pocket, a grandchild on tiptoes by the casket, peering at the lips that will not move, the sparrow chest that will not rise. And there's Tommy Seymour's for Sinclair gasoline and mechanical repairs, a green balloon dinosaur bobbing from a string over the cash register, old tires piled beneath the cottonwood, for sale in the side yard, a case tractor, a John Deere reaper, a hay mower, a red manure spreader, and a rusty grain conveyor, green weeds overcoming them, standing up inside them, trying slyly and little by little to inherit machinery for the earth. And beyond that, there are words, woods, a slope of pasture, six empty cattle pens, a driveway made of limestone pebbles, and the house where Alice Sorensen pages through a child's world book encyclopedia, stopping at the descriptions of California, Cape Town, Ceylon, Colorado, Copenhagen, Corpus Christi, Costa Rica, Cyprus. Widow Dwork has been watering the lawn in an open raincoat and apron, but at nine she walks the green hose around to the spigot and screws down the nozzle so that the spray is a misty crystal bowl softly baptizing the ivy. She says, how about some chamomile tea? And she says, yum, oh boy, that hits the spot, and bends to shut the water off. The Union Pacific night train rolls through town just after 10 o'clock when a 60-year-old man named Adolph Schooley feels like a boy again in bed, and when the huge weight of 40 or 50 cars jostles his upstairs room like a motor he'd put a quarter in. And over the sighing industry of the train, he can hear the train saying, Nebraska, 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 and he cannot sleep. Mrs. Antoinette Heft is at the home restaurant, placing frozen meat patties in waxed paper, pausing at times to clamp her fingers under her arms and press the sting from them. She stops when the Union Pacific passes, then picks a cigarette out of a pack of cools and smokes it on the back porch smelling air as crisp as oxidol, looking up at stars the Pawnee Indians looked at, hearing the low harmonica of big rigs on the highway, in the town she knows like the palm of her hand, in the country she knows by heart. And now for something completely different. This is, a, this is basically a, a found story. It's uh, based on a story that my father-in-law confessed to my wife about something he'd done to their dog 
long ago and had tried to hide from my family successfully for a long time. It's called My Kid's Dog. My kid's dog died. Sparky. I hated that dog. The feeling was mutual. We got off on the wrong foot, whining in his pen those first nights, my squirt gun in his face and him blinking from the water, and then the holes in the yard, the so-called accidents in the house, his nose snuffling into my Brooks Brothers trousers, him slurping my fine Pilsner beer or sneaking bites of my Dagwood sandwich when I fell asleep on the sofa. Also, his inability to fetch, to take a joke, to find the humor in sudden air horns, to be dandled, roughhoused, or teased, and then the growling, the skulking, the snapping at my ankles, the hiding from me under the house, and literally thousands of abject refusals to obey, like, who the hell are you? You'd have thought he was a cat. When pushed to the brink, I shouted, I'll cut your face off and show it to you. And the small-brained mammal just stared at me. But with the kids or my wife, little Fufu was a changeling, cunning them with the tail, the prance, the peppiness, the soft chocolate eyes, the sloppy expressions of love, the easy tricks that if I performed, I get no credit for. Oh, we understood each other all right. I was on to him. And then, at age 10, and none too soon, he kicked the bucket. You'd think that would be it. End of story. But no, he had to get even. Those who have tears, prepare to shed them. I was futzing with the hinges on the front yard gate on a Saturday afternoon, my tattersall shirt sleeves rolled up and my mind off in Oklahoma, when I noticed Fido in the California shade, snoozing, but for once a little wistful too and far more serene than he usually was in my offensive presence. I tried to surprise him with my standard patriarchal shout, shout, but it was no go. So I walked over and prodded the little guy with my wingtip. Nothing doing. And not so much as a flutter in his oddly abstracted face. Surely this was the big sleep, I thought. She who must be obeyed was at the mall provisioning, so I was safe from objection or inquiry on that account. I then made an inventory of my progeny, Buzz in the collegiate east in the realm of heart attack tuitions, Zach in the netherworld of the surf shop, Susie, my last kid, on her bike and somewhere with her cousin. Were I to bury Rover with due haste and dispatch, I could forestall the waterworks, even convince them that he'd signed up with the circus, run afoul of Cruella de Vil, anything but died. I got a, got a green tarpaulin from the garage and laid it out on the front yard where I hesitated before using my shoe to roll Spot into his funeral shroud, then dragged him back into the victory garden where August's dying zucchini plants were in, riot, were in riot. With trusty spade, I dug his burial place, heaped earth atop him, tamped it down with satisfying wumps. I was feeling good about myself, heroic, as if miraculously, compassion and charity had invaded not only my bones, but my soft muscle tissues. I fixed myself a tall glass of gin and tonic and watched the first quarter of the USC football game. And then pangs of conscience assailed me. Hadn't my investigation of the sad demise of Precious been rather cursory? Wouldn't I myself closely cross-examine a suspect 
whose emotions were clouded, whose nefarious wishes were well established, whose veterinary skins were without, skills were without, were without credential. The innocence of my childhood had been spoiled with the tales of Edgar Allan Poe, so it was not difficult to conjure images of scruffy clawing through tarpaulin and earth as he fought for one last gasp of air, air that others could more profitably use. I trudged out to the garden with a aforementioned spade and with great lumbar strain exhumed our darling lapdog. Considering the circumstances, he seemed none the worse for wear. But I did detect a marked disinclination to respirate, which I took as either a sign of his inveterate stubbornness or of his having reached the Stygian shore. The latter seemed more likely. I heard in my fuddled head a line from the Wild Bunch when a critically injured gunman begs his outlaw gang to finish it. And in the healing spirit of Hippocrates, I lifted high the shovel and wanged it down on Harvey's head. To my relief, not a whimper issued from him. I was confident he was defunct. With care, I shrouded and buried him again, committing earth to earth and dust to dust and so on, and with sprite-like step, conveyed myself to the kitchen where I made another gin and tonic and in semi-prone position settled into the game's third quarter, the fabled Trojan running attack grinding out, it would seem, another win. I was shocked awake by the impertinence of a ringing telephone, which I, with due caution, answered. It was my wife's friend, Vicky, inquiring about the pooch, for it was her assertion that Snip had fancied a taste of her son's upper calf, and without invitation or permission to do so, had partaken of same within the last 24 hours. Even while I was wondering what toxicity lurked in the child's leg, and to what extent the poison was culpably responsible for our adored pet's actionable extinction, a loss we would feel for our lifetimes, Vicky insisted that I have the dog checked out by a vet to ascertain if he had rabies. Cause of death, rabies, it seemed unlikely. Notwithstanding his surliness, there had been no Cujo-esque frothing or lunging at car windows. But my familiarity with torts has made me both careful and rather unctuous with the plaintiff, and so I assured my wife's friend that I would accede to her request. Off to the backyard again. My pace that of a woebegone trudge, and with aforementioned implement of agriculture, I displaced the slack and loosened earth. This was getting old. With an accusatory tone, I said, you're doing this on purpose, aren't you? And I took his silence as a plea of nolo contendere. My plan, of course, was to employ the Oldsmobile 88 to transport my burden to the canine's autopsy at Dr. Romo's office just a half mile away. However, upon my settling into its plush front seat, it came to my attention that Zach, he was but a sojourner on this earth, had not thought to replenish the fuel he'd used up on his trip to the Hollywood Bowl last night. The vehicle was not in a condition of plenitude, would not ferry us farther than a block. With Buster lying in the altogether in the driveway, not yet unsightly, but no calendar page, I went into the house and found an old leather suitcase in the attic, then stuffed the mud into the larger flapped compartment before hefting shortcake on his final journey to those veterinary rooms he always shivered in. I am, as I may have implied, 
a man of depth, perspicacity, and nearly Olympian strength. But I found myself hauling my heavy and lifeless cargo to Dr. Romo's with a pronounced lack of vigor and resolve. The September afternoon was hot. The Pasadena streets were vacant. The entire world seemed to have found entertainment and surcease in ways that I had not. I was, in a word, in a sweaty snit. And after many panting and pain-filled stops, my spine in Quasimodo configuration, and my right arm gradually inching longer than my left, it was all I could do not to heave the suitcase containing Wonder Dog into a hallway behind the Chinese restaurant. But during our joint ordeal, I developed a grudging affection for our pet, he who had been so quick to defend my kith and kin against the noise of passing trucks, who took loud notice of the squirrels outside, who held fast in the foyer, hackles raised, fearlessly barking whenever company arrived at the front door. With him, I seemed calm, masterful, and uneccentric, the superior man that the I Ching talks so much about. Without him, I thought I might be otherwise. I put down the suitcase to shake the ache from my fingers and subtract affliction from my back, and it was then that my final indignity came. An angel of mercy spied my plight, braked his ancient Cadillac, and got out, his facial piercings and tattoos and shoot the marble's eyes, belying the kindness and decency of his heart as he asked, Can I help you with that suitcase? I can handle it. Are you sure? I'm just two blocks away. What the heck's in it, he asked. And for some reason I said, a family heirloom. <laughs> wow, he said. Why don't you put it in my trunk and I'll help you with it. I got nothing better to do. Well, I did not just fall off the turnip truck. I would have been in other circumstances suspicious. But I was all too aware of the weight and worthlessness of my cumbrance. And so I granted his specified offer hoisting the deceased into the Seville and slamming down the trunk lid. And in evidence of our fallen state, my Samaritan immediately took off without me, jeering and peeling rubber and speeding west toward Los Angeles. I could only lift my hand in a languid wave. So long, old sport. Our world being the location of penance and recrimination, it was only right that my last kid should pedal up to me on her bike just then and ask, Daddy, what are you doing here? Waving to a fellow in need of a shovel, I thought. And then I confessed. Sparky's sudden death, the burial, not the exhumation, exhumation and execution attempt, but the imputation of rabies in my arduous efforts to acquit his reputation with the pilgrimage to the vets. Susie took it in with sang froid for a little while, but then the lip quivered and tears spilled from her gorgeous eyes. And as I held her close, she begged me to get her another dog, just like Sparky. And that was Sparky's final revenge, for I said, Okay, honey, another dog, just like him. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>